Yeah, so this is the the fifth week of our series and the last of our series on the hindrances. So the, what we've done for the last four weeks is we, we did an overview of just of the hindrances and of these five hindrances and talked about, you know, what makes something a hindrance and things like that. And then we've spent all the rest of the time on the first two hindrances. So tonight we want to focus on the last three, but I think we should be able to go through them just fine tonight. Um, so as a reminder, or for, or for those of you who just haven't been here for the other sessions, um, the first hindrance is uh, what we call it's, 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 it's desire or greed or clinging. They're not, those things are not all the same thing, but they're all very close. It's whenever something uh, that we want or that's very pleasant arises and we hold on to it. And that can become a hindrance. And we talked a lot about that. We won't go into it tonight. And the second of the hindrances is the opposite of that. It's aversion when there's something difficult or unwanted and we're pushing it away. We're unable. So those are two, uh, two sides of the same coin. It's ways in which we're not able to be present and free and clear and awake in the midst of whatever the experience is. Okay. So that's what we've talked about. I'm just not going into the detail. So let me, hopefully we'll have some discussion, but let me just mention the next hindrances. The third one is, is restlessness. And the fourth one is called sloth and torpor. And the fifth one is doubt. Okay. So let's talk a little about the restlessness. Probably all of us have experienced it. Um, Oh, and one other thing I should say, uh, the hindrances are talked about a lot in relationship to the actual formal meditation practice. They're hindrances to going to dropping into the deeper levels of the meditation, but they also apply in daily life also. So there's both ways that we talk about them. So we all know what restlessness is. S- certainly we can experience it if you're, if you're ever sitting in meditation and feel like I'm about to jump out of my skin, I don't think I can sit here another moment. I can't sit still. I've got to get up. That's all restlessness. Okay. Now, we often talk about... Uh, in Vipassana practice of using mindful awareness to connect with whatever experience, whatever's real in a moment, whatever the experience is, and to meet it with that mindful awareness, with that awakefulness. Well, restlessness is just another experience. What is it that makes it a hindrance? Why is it a hindrance? Anybody want to? You can't concentrate. Can't concentrate? Right. Right. Won't stay with something. Right. Yeah. Right. It's. Um, that's right. Both. That, that's exactly right. That, that it's that. Um, 
it's the quality of this experience is such that it's, it's, it's very strongly pulling us away f- from being present. It's, it's, so if it's within the realm, uh, it's not too strong and we can work with it, we could just notice with mindfulness that there's restlessness. And then that can be just what is occurring in the moment and then we can work with that as part of the Vipassana practice. That's one way we could work with restlessness. And if we can do that, it's actually not a hindrance. It's just probably an unpleasant experience arising. Um, I'm just thinking sometimes restlessness can be quite constructive. If you're in a situation or a job or whatever and you're just you know, happy and you're restless about it, you know, is there a positive aspect to restlessness? Yeah, I guess. I mean, maybe we could talk about that a little. I don't know. When, I'm not, but I think part of what you might be pointing to is, is that, which is something I was going to bring up, is that sometimes restlessness is just it's just a, it's just an energy imbalance. The energy is just too much, and that's all there is to it. Sometimes, though, restlessness can be there's something else that needs to be looked at that's underneath the surface. So I've had meditations when. Maybe there's a lot of restlessness, and you could connect with the restlessness itself. But when I looked a little closer, I said, well, what's fueling it? What's underneath it? I could see that really there's something I'm worried about underneath it. You know, oh yeah, you know, I've got a whatever. I, I need to write that paper for school, or boy, I've got a lot of things I have to get done by this time. You know, there's 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 something fueling it, or I'm worried about something, or afraid of something, or there's some difficulty under it. So it can be useful sometimes to look underneath and to really connect with what's fueling it. And sometimes by doing that, it can then uh, relieve the restlessness. Or if, if nothing else, we're getting more to the root cause there. So I don't know... Necessarily, if that if that's what you were referring to or not, or if we would even consider that a, it's always pointing to something to look at. So I'm not sure about the useful, usefulness because sometimes we're called into action regarding whatever situation, work or life, and it doesn't have to come out of restlessness. It can just be from a real clear place of just seeing and knowing what needs to be done, and then just moving into action, right? So I'm not sure. I don't know. Maybe other people have some thoughts about that. Okay. Well, we'll see. And if other things come up, you know, we can, you know, just we'll jump in any time. So that's a couple of places. One is there's just the restlessness itself. Now, another problem with restlessness is it kicks in the second hindrance, aversion. Because for most of us, probably all of us, restlessness is unpleasant. If you really make an extreme case, when I was saying, you know, you feel like you're going to just, you literally are going to bust open. If you sit still, you're going to, you know, just burst out of your skin. Well, it's unpleasant. So now, in addition to the restlessness itself, then aversion kicks in. And we made a joke, you know, kind of got a laugh, I think, on the first night of this series. But really, people talk about I don't think the Buddha said this, but you know they'll say, oh, you're having a multiple hindrance attack. And many of you have probably heard that before. So it even gets worse because it's not just one hindrance. There's the restlessness and the aversion at the same time. So we need to kind of uh, pick that apart. They're really two different things. 
If we're caught in the aversion, it'll be something else. And if it's not seen, it keeps us from seeing clearly what's going on. If there's no aversion, well, no problem. It's just restlessness, right? We're able to just be with it. There's the the restlessness. There's the unpleasant aspect of it. The feeling tone called Vedana feeling of it, which is unpleasant. And then maybe there's aversion too on top of it. So there's a couple of ways then that are... the classical methods of dealing with it. It always starts with, of course, mindfulness, because if we don't have the mindfulness, as with any hindrance or any experience, we're lost in it, right? This is what we've been saying over and over and over again. Applies to everything. We have to have enough wakefulness, mindfulness, in any situation to have any freedom or choice in how we're going to act. Sometimes we're just going to get lost, and then we're lost. When we can wake up and realize, oh, there's wet restlessness, see it mindfully, then we start to have some choice. One level, as we said, we can just be present with the restlessness. Another level is we can start to, um, I shouldn't say another level, but another uh, direction we can approach it at. There's not levels here, but another direction to approach it at is to see if there's something underneath it fueling it. See if there's a version there to it. Those are all ways to work with it with mindfulness. Sometimes what's needed is not to meet it with mindfulness. Sometimes what's needed is actually to use what's called an antidote to do something actually to alleviate it or make it Go away. And that's the art of this practice. It's the art of with any experience, when is the time to meet it with mindfulness and just be present and not in a fear? And when is the time when you need to take some action to tone it down or ease it off a little bit? We were talking about that a lot in the last few weeks with aversion. You know, if you're sitting with, say, in meditation with Maybe you get severe back pain or knee pain, right? We've said, I'm repeating this because I think there's some people here who haven't been here for this before. Um, one level is, is we'll just be present when the pain comes up. We don't want to be in reaction the first time, any, the first moment anything unpleasant arises. And if it gets too strong, it reaches a point where, you know, there's no sense struggling with it anymore. It's too much. It's too strong. And what we really need to do then is maybe shift our position, move a little, right? Because it's gone way past where it's useful to work with it. It's the same thing with, with restlessness. If we can work with it, then we can just let it be. Well, what are ways to work with restlessness? I can think of two, and maybe there are some others. The... Um, Traditional antidote for restlessness is to crank up the concentration. I'll hand these sheets out uh, later for those of you who didn't get them. Did I bring that one in with me? Uh, left it out in my car. I do have a sheet here out in my car. I can bring it in that I handed out the first night. It lists all the five hindrances and the uh, 
antidotes and everything. Anyway, the antidote for, for restlessness is you can crank up the concentration to really bear down with the concentration, make more effort, right, to kind of overcome it and to cut through it. You have to have enough concentration built up in your practice in general in the first place to be able to do that. But that's one thing that can work. Another thing that can help with restlessness is sometimes what's needed is to get up and dissipate the energy somehow. So not get up and walk away from the practice, but I've found that sometimes by getting up and maybe doing walking meditation instead of the sitting, it kind of gets the energy, let's, gets it out a little bit, and then I can settle down more. So those are two ways I can think of for working with restlessness comes. The problem with restlessness when it's really strong and there's no mindfulness, you sit down, you're restless, and the next thing you know, your body's just getting up and moving on to the next thing. <laughs> Before you know what happens, you're just up, up and gone. Right? You ever sat down to meditate and you sit down and say, oh, forget this, and you're just gone. Right? You didn't even have a chance to work with it because it just got you. So any comments or thoughts or opinions, questions about restlessness? For well, other sheets, is restlessness and remorse, um, how do they relate? Oh, yeah. Well, it's just like we're saying, um, the way I think of it is, I put that on there, uh, and that's traditionally kind of coupled with it sometimes when you'll read about it. Well, remorse might be what can, can fuel things. It's just like worry, fear. So remorse might be, for example, if... Say I was in an interaction with someone. Have you ever had an interaction with someone and it was a difficult interaction and maybe you said something that might have been a little harsh or a little, yeah, you kind of regretted, had some remorse. Oh, gee, I blew it. Oh, I feel bad that I said that. Now, imagine if you came to sit. It's possible that you might calm down, but it could also be that you're still just still cranking around because that remorse is just, oh, gee, and it's going through the mind. Oh, I said this. You know, and it can keep... That's a restlessness. It's the energy's too much. You're not settling down. So it's just another... It's a part that can fuel it, I suppose, is one way to think about it. Yeah, yeah you want to point out the way, way not to get into trouble with remorse. The... Uh says in the text is to lead a virtuous life. Well, the Gwaxi says a blameless life. The way to lead a blameless life is to lead a virtuous life, and that is following the precepts. And, mm-hmm. But then you, you feel no um, sense of blame. You're right. virtuous, and you have nothing to feel guilty about. Right. No, that's exactly the reason why in the Eightfold Path, you know, it's divided into these three sections, the Sila, Samadhi, and the Panya, the, what they call the morality and the meditation and the wisdom sections, and we, you know, we don't we do them all in parallel. You don't have to start with one, but the, the morality, and we don't want to use it in a negative connotation. That some people can take that word morality in the West, but it's just living your life in a you know, like the precepts, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. If you want to think of that, right, right speech, right action, right livelihood, which in the precepts are kind of ways of implementing that. Because if we live in ways that are causing more harm 
bad, not bad, but uh, difficult, harmful, unwise speech or unskillful speech or actions, doing things in the world, it is going to be hard to settle down. This is exactly right. So the mind is not going to be able to go deep. You're not going to be able to, you know, live your life out of greed and aversion and being a jerk and running around and being an awful person and then sit down and kind of go deep in this um, calm, quiet meditation. It's just the mind's not going to do that. That's exactly... So it's purification, then? What's that? It's like purification. What is like purification? Well, you can't have all that block in the way to being able to sit mindfully, to sit quiet, because if you have guilt or greed or right. any of those things, but it's kind of a purifying... Yeah, and so this actually, that gets into a very interesting place that, and I'm trying to be really good tonight about staying on topic, because uh, that's, I mean, you're bringing up a really great thing. Let me just say something briefly on it, and then we're going to get back. That, that's a big topic, because, so we all start in this practice with who we are, and we start where we're at, right? We say that all the time, it's kind of a cliche, but that's the truth, right? You can't be other than you are, and you can't be other than where you're at. So, if you want to use the word purification, which is used in the texts, it's a traditional term. The Vasudhi Magga is the path of purification, which is this commentarial, famous commentarial text. We have to be careful with purification because we all would like to probably be whatever pure is. as we're moving towards that, we don't want it to be an aversion, coming out of aversion for where we're at. We want to be, so it starts with self-acceptance. Otherwise, we're in one of the hindrances already, which is aversion, like, oh, I'm all screwed up, i got to get better. That's one thing. Second thing is, it can be one of these chicken and egg situations, because say we're, and I'm saying, using this term purposely, I, um, so say we're not very pure. I, I'm, I, I don't know a better way to say it. that's not a good way, but just you know we haven't done much purification. So all of our uh, unskillful aspects of ourselves are really up in full force. They will tend to be hindrances for the very work we do that helps clear out or get us freer from those. So the the more work we do the more purified we get, if you want to say it that way, the more purified we get, the more we're able to drop down deeper. So they kind of support each other. right? But fortunately, the Buddha had this wonderful image um, in which he, he said, uh, I don't remember the exact words, but the idea of it is that it doesn't matter because just starting wherever we're at is fully enough. And it gets into the idea of conditioning because as we take even one step in a direction, it reinforces that. It's like the habit or conditioning of the mind is built in that direction. So just by pointing us generally in the right direction of of the Dharma, that's what this Eightfold Path is, and just starting, it might be we'll still have our difficulties and and maybe get caught, but it will continue to open to grow like any habit or tendency that we're developing. And the image he used was one of a river. And he said, sometimes you look at a river and it might have places where you can really see it flowing. 
Maybe it's narrow and you can really see the flow of the water. In other places, it might be very deep and wide. You can't even tell that it's moving. It is moving, of course, but it looks like a lake almost. But eventually, it doesn't matter. There's only one place for the river to go. It, It eventually ends up in the ocean. Nothing else is possible. It only flows in one direction. And it's the same thing with the Dharma. Only one thing is possible when you sort of step into the river of the Dharma, if you will. It's this beautiful image. No matter what level, or I don't want to say level, but, but uh, no matter to what, how or in what way we engage with these teachings that are teachings about bringing more self-awareness, more loving kindness and compassion, just the, and, and you know, of course, we all get into this judging and comparing minds. I shouldn't say we all, but I think it's common for people to do that. We want to judge it. We don't know, and we're the least qualified to judge. Buddha said, there's only one possible outcome, freedom and liberation. Even a moment of trying to, even if we're kind of faking it and just trying to pretend like we're a little more loving or a little more compassionate, that just is inclining the mind in that direction and then it reinforces it for the next time around. Okay, So that's, I kind of got going off there. but uh, Anyway, that's restlessness. Okay, then that was the third one. The fourth one, sloth and torpor. And, you know, that's <laughs> if you've ever sat in meditation and you've seen people sitting and they're nodding off and they'll be sitting and they're kind of jerking. And I mean, you're just, the, it's like the mind is just thick and cloudy. It can be sleepiness, which is not, sometimes it just feels like it may not even be sleepiness, but the mind just is, it almost feels like it's covered with thick, Blanket, you just—it's not clear. It, and no matter how much you try, you just can't seem to really make it sharp and clear. The image that's used for all these hindrances is for restless. It's in the, in the image that's used—it's like—it's like there's this pond or a lake, and you want to be able to see clearly to the bottom. So when the when the water is clear and still, you can see very clearly right to the bottom easily. Restlessness is considered, the image is like wind that blows across the top, makes ripples on the top, and then it's whipped it up, and so you can't see to the bottom very clearly. That's the image of restlessness. The, the image of sloth and torpor is it's like a lot of algae and gunk is growing in the water, and you can't see down there. You just gunked up the mind. Right? That's sloth and torpor. Now, what makes sloth and torpor a hindrance? It's just an experience arising, right? Which and that's true for all of these. Very difficult to concentrate. Yeah. It's very difficult to bring mindfulness. Yeah. By its very nature, you're just not able to muster up much, <laughs> right? Mindfulness or concentration. Now, it's also pr- usually pretty unpleasant, you know, to sit in meditation. Uh, but you can do it. I've had meditations when I've been on some longer retreats, and just as an experiment, when I'd start pushing, try to sit up, stay up later, um, uh, and just play with it, push it a little bit. 
got to places where you know it was I was so sleepy. Actually, the mind was kind of clear, but there was only two mind states, intense sleepiness and intense aversion. That was it. But actually, that was known in awareness quite easily. Didn't feel like much, so, yeah. Which I don't know if I'd call that sloth and talker. The sleepiness? I mean, if you just don't have enough sleep. Right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Your body and mind need a certain amount of sleep, and... And you're playing with that, which is also good, too. Yeah. But, um, I think you're right. You know, sloth and top is more like this. It's it's the a, mind just wants to like shut down. Right. And, and one of the things it does, and one of the things it can do, is, is go to sleep. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's not sleepiness. I, I, I get sloppy in the way I, I kind of lump them all together. But you're right, it's more that just that dullness, thickness of mind. Once again, aversion can kick in also with that. So then you've got another aspect to it. You know, if, so one way to work with the sloth and torpor is, you could sit. You know, you may not get a lot of concentration or mindfulness developed, but you know, if you could just be with an ease of heart and just not struggle with it and sit with it, maybe, um, and you didn't have much aversion, it's really not a problem. That's just what's going on in the moment. No big deal. One level. You know, and you can argue about some people might say, yeah, but it's not really that good of a use of your time. Maybe you should get up and um, whatever. Get rouse your energy up, and that's the antidote to the sloth and torpor, is to do things to rouse energy. So sometimes maybe it's better to because it can be just an energy imbalance, really, a lot of the sloth and torpor especially if you start getting into the deeper concentration. That's why um, when you're doing more retreat practice, one of the reasons that you alternate sitting and walking is because you're trying to keep the continuity of the practice up throughout the day as much as possible, and you can only sit so long. So part of it is you'll alternate sitting and walking. But also, another piece is it actually balances the energy out, and that's really true, and uh, can't be overstressed that... um, you know, if you sit and sit and sit too much, you know, sometimes you can be really clear and sharp and crisp, but then as the energy can get out of balance, it can really lower. And then you need to get up and do the walking, and that can help uh, balance out the energy quite well. So that's one of the antidotes is to uh, do something or sometimes just opening the eyes a little, maybe take some breaths in. The Burmese say if you pull on your earlobes, it's supposed to help, but I, I don't know, I... Maybe there's some acupuncture points there. I don't know, but that's what they say. I mean, it does hurt if you really squeeze them and pull. Maybe that would kind of sharpen the mind up a little. I don't know. You know, if you really yank on them, it kind of hurts. So anyway. So, you know, it's just finding ways. Um, and if the mind does shut down, um, like like Steve's saying, you know, maybe I'm Michelle McDonald Smith once said, once you've tried everything else, maybe nothing. Maybe you need sleep. They're extreme Jack Hornfield's teacher, Joseph Goldstein's teacher, told him to go sit by a well. Right. That'll keep right. You're not going to fall asleep if you're on the edge of a well. <laughs> so Now, sometimes also what can happen is you're talking about sometimes the mind wants to shut down. There can be something that, we, that wants to be avoided. It's kind of like restlessness is sort of trying to pull us away, like I can't be here, the energies. Well, another possibility is sometimes sloth and torpor can be because there's something that we don't want to see and the mind tends to shut down. You know, maybe 
I'm not sure how to look under that. When you have a dull mind, you don't really have the tools necessarily so much to work with it. But it, it can just be sometimes that we don't want to be present. So we're spacing out or we're dull, getting dull or all different ways that the mind can go on. Sometimes the mind can be thick and dull and it's not the same as sleepiness, but sometimes we really can just need some rest. So there's a lot of different ways, but normally for the, the real pure sloth and torpor, the, the antidote is to get the energy up somehow. Bring in more energy. Splash cold water in your face. Bring, take some breaths. Open the eyes. Stand up. You know, that's instruction in the meditation that's used a lot. You know, and you'll see people, probably have seen people sometimes when everybody's sitting and one or two and three are just standing there with standing with eyes closed and still continue with the practice. Works great. You know, the Buddha said you can be enlightened in any of four positions, right? Sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. That covers them all. Almost. There's another one, but that's got almost all of them. So it doesn't matter. You know, it's just how to work. This all comes down to what is occurring moment by moment and how to work with it moment by moment. That's all I need to see. Okay? So I don't have that much else to say myself on sloth and torpor. Yeah. No, no, no. Don't, don't, don't worry. That's, to me, the biggest of all, actually, for me. Okay. Well, let's move on to doubt then, the fifth. In some ways, you can think of the, the greed or grasping or desire and the opposite of it, the aversion, the first two hindrances as being really, in some sense, those are the two biggies. Okay. They're also part of another list called the three poisons called hatred, greed, and delusion. Hatred is the aversion. Greed is the opposite, the clinging, same as the first two hindrances. And the uh, delusion is the underlying ignorance that right, doesn't see things how they are. So those are two biggies. Um, for me, doubt is... Um, may, uh, hopefully we'll have some discussion on this. I'll just say a little bit. It's not referring to to doubt in the sense of, you know, a healthy doubt of, well, I doubt that that's true, kind of, a, you know, somebody says something, well, I have some doubt, I wonder if that's true. It's not that kind of doubt. It's this insidious undermining of our confidence in, in knowing in ourselves, in the practice, in our ability to deal with anything, um, it can be take many forms. Um, I've had on retreats where, where just just this I call it despair would come up, and it's it's a form of the doubt. I mean, it's also unpleasant and you get the aversion, but just you know, I'd be on a retreat and you know you have nothing to do but you just sit and walk and like you can't. There's no place to go and just all your stuff comes up and I just get. I've had the experience where you just drop into this despair, and then when the mind kicks in around that, it can just feel like. You know, then the stories kick in. And the problem is we, we don't have mindfulness and to see that there's stories arising. And we're just lost in it. And we believe it. Oh, you know, whatever the story is. It's hopeless. The way mine always used to go, not so much these days, but would be, you know, some version of 
I'm nothing. My life's nothing. Nobody has ever loved me. <laughs> Some Whatever. Uh, and just feeling this hopeless black pit of despair. Now, that's a strong case of doubt, okay? <laughs> but that's an example that I've been through before. It's very painful. Not only is it painful, so it's very unpleasant, and of course the aversion can kick in, but there's something about it. It's like you put on these glasses that filter and color everything coming in. The very perception, the way we view everything is colored by that voice. And so it cuts the legs out from from us. It just cuts out from everything our ability to even have some confidence that we can even that it even this works or that I'm someone that can even do this practice or or that you know that there's any hope or you know it's though that's the kind of doubt it's that it undermines it doesn't have to be this strong I'm trying to say it in a strong way just to get it across but it can be you know um, milder versions so I have some more things I could say about it, but I wanted to just kind of open it up a little and see if anybody had any thoughts about that, comments, questions. I have a, a more of a practical question, but if you're on a retreat, let's say, and fall into that real pit of despair, right. can you talk to somebody? I mean, is there any way out of it, or how do you do right. it? I mean, well, like any th- I find that very scary. Right, so it, it is scary. I would say two things about it. One is depending on the retreat you're in, but most of the type of retreats that would be connected with, you know, our style of practice. First of all, um, you can always go find one of the teachers and just help, you know, if you really have to do that. Or you could, yeah, you go take care of yourself. You don't have to. Or you can try to work with it if you can, but if it really gets strong, if you're really lost in it, once again, if it's so strong, we're not able to work with it. People, if you ever go on retreats and you'll see there's a bulletin board usually where people leave notes for the teachers. Some days you'll notice that some teachers have like, you know, 15 notes up there. Well, it's all this kind of stuff going on, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and the teachers point out retreats, I mean, that's for one thing to support your practice. And the thing that's, I might say, serious about doubt is if you get into that rut, I mean, your practice immediately stops. Or you're just going to wallow in it, wallow it, wallow in it, not get anywhere. And going to see a teacher, um, you know, like have you use use a different perspective? Um, I don't know. You miss stars. This isn't a treat, but actually, Joko Beck mentioned how she was a teacher of mine, and she once gave a talk. She, she said, "I'll never forget my first retreat. It was 105." And the flies all over the place. And I don't know who was crazier, me or the guy next to me for sitting this retreat. <laughs> and hearing her talk about that, she had doubt. She worked through it. Yeah. Joko Beck's a great teacher, too. And she even went through it. Among her other books, the one I love is Everyday Zen, which I'm sure you're familiar with. She's probably done others. If you're interested, it's a great book. So I think when I talk about the insidious nature of these kind of, when, the, when doubt comes up, this particular hindrance is, where I find that it's such a hindrance is, certainly in my earlier days of retreats, and it shifted for me, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but in my earlier days when it would come up, 
I would just be shocked, you know, you're on retreat. And I remember the first time I really got hit by this on a longer retreat, there wasn't anything particular. Sometimes there's things actually going on in life that we can point to that we're depressed or lonely or whatever the difficulty is about, and, and it can come up in the retreats. The first time it hit me, though, life was kind of going on okay. It just came roaring up, and I was just shocked. And it really got me, and it just was so real, and I was so lost in it, and just struggling. Oh, as a matter of fact, the first time I got it, I was on a retreat, um, and I was camping near the meditation hall, but I f- found this place to camp. Uh, it was just over a little hill. It was only about a one or two minute walk from the meditation hall, but it felt very isolated, but it wasn't really that far. I thought, this is a great place to camp. And it was, you know, we got there and everybody sat and walked in the hall and we gave the intro. And then it was that first evening I walked back and, you know, it's dark. And I sat and you heard the bell way off in the distance, this lonely. And it started coming, this loneliness. And then it went spiraled down and I just thought, it was the first night of the retreat. I mean, I hadn't even started. And I just went, oh, not this, anything. But it was just, oh, in my stomach. And it was so much aversion, and it just spiraled me down. I was just caught in it. And I suffered probably for a couple of days. What's happened, I have found over time, is, is that it still can come sometimes. Not For me, I found just maybe just maturing of the practice, not nearly so bad or nearly so often. And when it does come... I really tend, I don't want to be arrogant and say it will never catch me, but pretty much I find now that when it comes up, it's known, I see it, because I've had experience working with it, and it can actually be quite difficult, and I can just feel it and um, and just go up. My old friend, despair, loneliness, or whatever that I want to label it, and I can feel it, and I know that it kind of comes and goes, like they say, you know, like clouds passing through in the sky. And I can't tell you how many times I've been on retreat and I'd wake up some morning and I'm just in it and it's, and that after, you know, and I'm struggling for a few hours and I don't know what changed. I didn't go see a teacher, nothing. That afternoon, life's beautiful. And I'm full of gratitude and I'm crying of gratitude. It's so beautiful. You know, these, these things come and go. So, when we're not caught in it, you can just know it, see there, and just just cool out. And I don't mean cool out in the sense of make it go away. You can be present with these difficult experiences, and we don't have to get lost in it. We can be fully experiencing it and still kind of have a little bit of freedom around it and just be, be present with it. One thing I've uh, talked about here before, uh, some of you have heard this, that um, I was listening to some tapes of talks that Ajahn Sumedho gave. If you don't know Sumedho, he's just a really fabulous teacher, a Thai. He's, he's a Westerner, but he, he, he's a, a senior monk in a, um, one of the Thai traditions. Some of you may have heard of Amaravati over in England, and he's he's the the head abbot. He's the abbot, and uh, he was talking about when all these different experiences would kind of float through the mind. He would he would just meet them with, oh, 
Loneliness is like this. Despair is like this. Joy is like this. And he would just greet each thing. And I found for myself that that was very, very helpful. Something about that way of labeling it, it did two things for me, and you may want to experiment. So I've tried it when I've been in really just despair, and I would say despair is like this. First of all, it did allow me to meet it with mindfulness, to say, okay, it's like this, and to to get a little space around it so I'm not lost in it. But it also had a little bit of the, so that was the sort of the wisdom or the compassion, I mean, of the mindfulness part, but it had a little twinge of the compassion. It's like, yeah, you know, it's like this. Despair's like this. It's painful. It's hard. It hurts. And just to acknowledge the difficulty and still meet and, and still find a way, can I be just present with this? And so just to say, you know, despair is like this. And I really have worked with it a lot, kind of almost like a mantra. Despair is like this, to be present. And found that it was actually very helpful. Now, sometimes you're doing it because you're really trying to get away. Despair is like this. And you're really trying to, like, but it's not working. It's supposed to make it go away. <laughs> you know, it may or may not go away. So the antidote, so... Always first, if we can be awake enough and not be... See, when we're lost in it, it's going to be very painful, right? Very painful. If we can be awake enough, we can just be present for it and feel the feelings of it. And just sit with it. I was just talking to someone uh, today about a time when... uh, I think it was probably about a year ago. I don't remember exactly when I had been through some difficulties... And within a period of a couple of days, several very difficult things happened so that I woke up on a Saturday morning and I was just very, I just kind of had some, I don't know if it would be a depression or just some difficult despair. I mean, I just woke up with that kind of just, and it turned out that day I didn't have anything that I had to do. So I just decided, all of a sudden I realized I was trying to make it go away, call somebody, put on the TV, do something. And I just realized, no, and I just sat. And I took about, I don't know, a third or a half of the day. I didn't turn on the TV, didn't call anybody, didn't answer the phone, didn't go out, sat on my couch, didn't meditate, didn't try to stir it up, didn't try to make it alleviate it. I just sat there. And when I realized I was about to do this, it just seemed kind of, it scared me. Like, am I really going to just do this? And just to sat there, just sat on the couch. Being present and just letting it be. Didn't do anything with it. Just as an experiment. I'm not particularly saying you should do this. It wasn't meditation practice. And my only task was when I would space out and everything, once I realized that, I would come back. But rather than coming back to the breath or whatever, I just kept coming back to the actual experience and just sat there in the presence of this experience and let it, let, let the experience be. You know, and over the course later in the day, I did that for several hours, just sitting there. Get up, I have to go to the bathroom or get a drink of water, do that, and come and just sit again, just like this, sitting on the couch. What I found was is that I could do it. I could be present for it. Just sitting right in the hopelessness and the difficulty and the despair. Now, sometimes what's needed is 
to work on it a little bit and maybe think about, well, is it really hopeless? Figure it out. Decide what to do. You know, there's a place for that. Or talk to somebody or just do things to feel better. All the things we would normally do. But it is nice to know that through that process, we can be present for our experience, even if it's difficult. So if we can be present for doubt, even though it's unpleasant, without getting caught in the aversion, we can work with it. But the antidote for the doubt is um, its just finding ways to get our faith back, if you will. Getting support. Maybe it's reading the teachings of the Buddha, or it's talking to someone, or you do go to a teacher on a retreat, or whatever it is that you can do so you're not just stuck on your own in the muck, but to, to get some help to what inspires you or lifts you out or just clears it up, and to find those ways. Would you look on your sheet? What's the antidote? I mean, what's the image for doubt? Like muddy water. Muddy water? Was it? Was I right about sloth and torpor? It's like algae? Moss. Moss? Oh, moss. Okay. And, the, and so the doubt is like muddy water. Yeah, it's just, it's all muddy. muddy. We can't, and we don't see clearly. It gets back to the, what we were talking about earlier about perception. It's colored our, the way we see things. We're actually creating some kind of meaning making about how things are that's created. Okay. So that's the basics, I think, of those last three hindrances, restlessness, sloth and torpor, and doubt. So we have a little time left. If if there's anything else, yeah. Um, With doubt, um, I mean, it can come from low self-esteem. Oh, yeah. I was thinking the other day, does it come, I mean, like low self-esteem or, you know, just not being sure, just really in that matter of, of self-doubt. Um, it can come from, I mean, the life that you've led in this particular particular life, from conditioning, from your family life, from whatever way you might have been brought up and what happens. But how much of it is conditioning and how much do you think it comes from just like karmically? Kind of? I mean, it can't be, is conditioning and karmically or... Conditioning is karmically, and I mean, it's, I yeah. just can right. separate it. Yeah, let's look at it this way. What was, can you summarize? Yeah. Right here. She asked the question of this, the doubt uh-huh. can come from a variety of causes, such as it can come from low self esteem, but also, make sure I'm saying this right, but also maybe there's other things that aren't so evident. It might just be the way our minds are conditioned. However, they got to be conditioned that way, it could have been just. From this life, or maybe, maybe getting to previous lifetimes, or karma, or whatever, wherever we get the, maybe we're born in with this conditioning, or so whatever. Yeah. And then she's talking about karma and conditioning. So let me just say this: I have two things to say on it. The first is uh, there is a. So I want to say that there is a the traditional teachings on multiple lifetimes and rebirth and karma and conditioning. And and let me just mention something about that. But the second thing is, to me, I I think those teachings, I don't actually have direct experience myself of 
previous lifetimes and a lot of that stuff. Um, I don't know. I happen to believe in them, but it's totally a belief. You know, you can have a belief. You just know it's a belief that you don't know, right? So that's kind of, you know. So I do believe it, but I don't know. Well, to me, what's really, it, those, there's a place where those teachings are useful. But there's a way we can take them that, that could be also maybe not helpful and useful. We want to be careful. What I would say is, is for me, and, and everybody's going to have to find their own place. There's not a right or wrong. But one, let me just say one possible way is, is that however we got to be how we are, however we got here with this package, with this conditioning, here we are, what are we going to do? I don't actually know about the karma. As a matter of fact, the Buddha called karma. So karma is part of, goes into conditioning, and we're not going to have time to get into that, although we could have a a good discussion about that. And they're not the same thing. But the Buddha said about karma, he called it, there's this list of four things he called were the unthinkables. And what that means is he said, number one, they're so vast and intricate and deep that it's not even possible to figure them out, even if you try. You'll never be able to figure it all out. And second of all, if you did try to, it would just blow your mind. It would just cause you a lot of suffering. So don't even go there. Karma is one of those. The workings, the intricacies of karma is one. Even though there are teachings on karma, but the kind of things of like, was this karmic? or did That would be the kind of thing where I th- you know, you're going to be a little careful. It can be useful to look back in our lives at what can be known and as part of you know, dealing with our conditioning or our upbringing or our childhoods and to see... You know, how was I raised? You know, what was with whatever my mother or my father or my environment? How did I deal with that? Can be very, you know, anybody's done some therapy work or whatever can be very, I think it has a place. As to the extent that it's connected in with bringing more awareness into or, or more, more aware of ourselves, right? To see, oh, more understanding or insight into ourselves. When we start getting past that, there's a lot that we just don't know. And um, it can get into a lot of different beliefs. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very, very important though, to look at, uh, I don't know, black or better word, basic karma. That if you do certain things with your mind and body, you will have certain results. Um, you know, forget about anything with the mind, but let's say you like to eat. And you overeat and then you feel sick. Well, that there was a cause and there was effect there, and that's karma. You ate too much, the result was you got sick. You know, more mind ones is um, if you if you um, if your mind is is angry and you act on it, you know, it's going to have certain repercussions mm-hmm. in your life. Friends are not going to like you. That's you're directly responsible for that. You've caused that. Right. And so that that understanding of karma is extremely right. important. Right. And that's the the skillful, the wise use because it helps influence or us into want to or motivate us to want to act in ways that don't create difficult karma. But the the one of the inappropriate ways I would say to use karma if you see someone maybe who's crippled 
or they're you know in starving in some third world country. It w- maybe I don't know, but you, I suppose someone could say, well, karmically, you know, karma was part of what. But it's not appropriate to say, well, you deserve that because you must have had bad karma. You know, nobody deserves. So that's not you know that would be. I don't think you were saying that, but I just want to point that out. That that would be a way that would probably not be. It's certainly not a very compassionate way to take karma. It's you know. So we don't want to say, well, I, I, you know, how did I, what did I do to myself to deserve this? And then, and then we can start to sort of have a negative effect. So. Any, anything else? Well, yeah, and it, I don't know, you know, um, uh, as I said, in um, it, the, the way the Buddha taught, I mean, the way it, this, I know there's lots of that around what you're talking about. I haven't heard, that, you know, it's possible if you go back into the early suttas that maybe there's places the Buddha talked like that, but I don't recall anything like that. But definitely there is this, where karma and conditioning come together. And I think you used a great example. But so, for example, if um, I'll just change it a little bit. Say I'm I, where I say I am kind of a hot-headed, angry, impatient sort of person. And I go to work and I've been working with these same people for a few years. And every day I'm barking at people and I'm impatient. And then maybe something happens and I change. One day I hit my head and I wake up and I'm not that way anymore. I walk into work the next day and, gee, I'm a real just mellow, nice guy. And I walk in and say, hey, Joe. Hi, Jane. How are you doing? Well, the way I acted for those previous years didn't cause them to give me the cold shoulder when I was being nice, but it strongly conditioned it strongly con- contributed to the conditioning, so they're going to certainly have that strong tendency or conditioning to to respond in a way. So you can think of it as that is I'm getting a karmic result, and I, and it's contributed to this conditioning that's been put out there. Right? So the Buddha talked that way, kind of. The main thing, the only reason for anything is is, and it's said very clearly in all the teachings, and we all know this. What's done is done, right? You can't all we can do is work with here and now in this moment. How are we going to think, speak and act? Is it leading to more freedom, to more happiness? Is what we say over and over, right? More liberation? Is it leading to more suffering, more difficulty? Sometimes when we don't have the awareness, we're at the effect of things and we are thinking, speaking, and acting in unskillful ways. Maybe it's not intentional, but we're just, we're, we don't have the, the mindful awareness. And we're stuck. 
as we get more wakefulness, we start to see that and maybe have some freedom and choice around that. And that's really all that we're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah, I'd go out on a limb and say that people who have that attitude that people deserve, um, the crippled, they deserve through karma, it's a corruption of the teaching. And someone actually asked that to Jeff, Tom, uh, Tom Jeff a couple of years ago. Oh, what did he say? And, and he said, well... You know, if you were ill or something, you were, you were, you were crippled or something, you'd want people to treat you with respect and helpful and compassion, yeah. just as you would want it. You know, you should treat other people that way. Yeah. That's wonderful. And um, we're actually going to end on time tonight. So um, I'll just end with, on that exact same note, maybe I'll just say that um, hopefully what we're trying to learn is to, yes, Treat others with care, kindness, compassion, but make sure we don't forget to do that for ourselves with care, kindness, and compassion too. Right? Okay. So, anyway, um, we're towards the end, and every night I've been running over a few minutes, so we did well, good tonight, and we're, we're going to end on time. So we'll just end with the traditional short metta practice, loving-kindness practice that we do. Okay? And so uh, I invite you to find a position uh, to sit in or lie down, whatever position you need to be in, so you can be as comfortable as possible. Some people's bodies won't get comfortable no matter what position they're in, and then you do the best you can. Really try to sit. You don't need to be in a fancy posture. Um... And then the way I like to do the metta practice is to start with, um, if, if your awareness has been out, disconnected from yourself and from the body, out into the room or into the discussion, to reconnect back in using the body or the breath, however you want to, and just to connect with awareness into the body. And just to be present with whatever's there, not having to do anything with it. And then opening to the entire uh, range of experience, the body, uh, states of the mind and the heart. And just holding all of that as much as you can with the sense of allowing and acceptance. So it's a practice of deep self-acceptance. And we always say that if, if there is something in, the, in your experience or within yourself you're not able to be present for or cannot accept, then to make sure you have some acceptance for that, that place in you that that can't be with this. 
And then from that place of um, self-acceptance, to start actively sending some metta towards yourself, some loving kindness towards yourself. It can be a feeling or it can just be a thought or a wish of just uh, of well-wishing for yourself. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be free from inner and outer harm. May I be free from suffering. And then you can stay with that, or if you'd like, expand your awareness to all the others here in the meditation hall. Sending that, radiating out the metta. Or if you don't feel it, it's fine. It can just be a thought or a wish. Just as I wish to be happy, may everyone here be happy. And just as I wish to be um, peaceful, may everyone here be peaceful. May everyone here be safe. May everyone here be free from suffering. And then um, finally extending the awareness radiating this metta, this field of metta out um, really through the whole world and, and, and the whole universe. It's even beyond the world. And just as the rain does not decide to rain down on some people and not on others, and just as the sun shines equally on on all beings, that we send our metta out to include all beings, excluding no one. And there's so much uh, difficulty these days in the world. You know, can we um, send these same good wishes out to not only those that we are fond of, but people maybe even who are difficult for us, just for a moment, you know, wishing, you know, may all beings, all beings are the same. All beings uh, want to be happy and free from suffering. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none, through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, 
so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Good night.